Welcome to today's episode of the All Things Protest podcast. I'm Rob Sneckenberg, and with me today is Olivia Lynch and our guest, Anuj Vora. Anuj has been following and recently wrote a detailed blog post about the Section 809 panel's bid protest recommendations, one of the hottest topics in bid protests, if not all of government contracts. Anuj, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Rob and Olivia. Could you just start things off by reminding our listeners what the Section 809 panel was? Yeah, I I would be happy to. So the 2016 National Defense Authorization Act at Section 809, cleverly enough, included a recommendation that the Department of Defense consider ways by which to streamline its procurement process. As a result of that direction, a panel was assembled that put together a report in three volumes, the most recent of which was issued in January of this year. And volume three of the 809 report contained a number of recommendations that speak to either directly or indirectly the bid protest process. So you say that there are recommendations specifically about the protest process, but what really grabbed my eye from your blog post was that you were talking about a recommendation on commercial items that you think actually will impact the protest process more than the protest-specific recommendations. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I would be happy to talk about that. Uh, so recommendation 35 of the report Well, let me back up. So there are four specific recommendations, starting at Recommendation 66, that explicitly deal with the protest process, both at the Government Accountability Office and the Court of Federal Claims. But there's another recommendation, Recommendation 35, that we believe, if implemented, would have a far more drastic impact on the bid protest process. Recommendation 35 more generally speaks to the way by which the Department of Defense will procure commercial items. And what it does is it replaces commercial items generally with two categories, one readily available items and two items that are readily available with customization. So readily available and readily available with customization. I don't think we've heard those terms before in the government contract space. I don't think I've heard them in the government contract space either, Olivia. Uh, So great question. These are definitions that the panel has come up with. Readily available speaks to, as we read it, your standard commercially available off-the-shelf items. Readily available with customization is, you know, the definition is a bit more vague, but essentially it's defined as goods and services that can be customized using commercial procedures. Commercial procedures, is this like a, I'll know it when I see it? Or I mean, is there a detailed explanation of what it means? So the, the problem, Rob, and that's a great question, is that there really isn't a sort of detailed definition of what commercial procedures mean. And the problem, as we'll get to when we talk about how protests of these procurements work, is that these definitions are incredibly broad and appear to cover just about everything. And in fact, the um, 809 panel's report admits that just about all services contracts would fall under the definition of at least readily available with customization. So we are now talking about way more than just what you would think of when you think of traditional commercial items. So what was the uh, protest process laid out in the 809 panel for these types of goods and services? So for readily available and readily available with customization goods, for these procurements, DOD would not be required to issue any sort of pre-solicitation notice or an RFP. Instead, the only thing DOD would need to do is to conduct market research to determine that such items are, in fact, readily available. 
Wait, hold up. If there's no pre-solicitation, there's no solicitation, how are we going to file a pre-award protest challenging the terms of the solicitation that doesn't exist? And therein lies the first big problem with these recommendations, Rob, is, and that's that this new paradigm of readily available would remove any opportunity for pre-award protests. In fact, the only protest that would be available would be a post-award agency-level protest challenging whether or not the goods and services that were procured were, in fact, readily available. Full stop. So beyond just the impacts on the protest process, how would contractors even know how to compete for these types of awards? I mean, essentially, it would be DOD reaching out to contractors asking for quotes as part of that readily available determination. But there would be no way by which, absent some outreach from the federal customer, that contractors would know that these goods or services were being procured. What about the traditional safeguards for equal opportunities for offerors, equal treatment for offerors? I'm a little concerned by your discussion of even even the limited post-award protest options. So there's no GAO, there's no COFC, and the only thing you can challenge is the reasonableness of the uh, market research. What about typical protests that we see, you know, price realism protests, consideration of OCIs, the general rationality of an award decision? You know, those are our typical bread and butter protest allegations now. Where would those fall? Yeah, you should be a lot concerned about this, Rob, not just a little. So, and you're absolutely right. This process would remove oversight by GAO or the Court of Federal Claims, and all of those protest arguments that that you talked about would be out the window. So, you know, no more consideration of unequal treatment, uh, improper discussions, any type of pricing consideration, conflicts of interest, or even just the general rationality of an award. Those would not be considerations under this new paradigm. So did the panel cabin this recommendation at all? To some extent, yeah. I mean, this procurement process would be limited to procurements that are less than $15 million, but that's with two caveats. One, I mean, $15 million is not a small number. I think the vast majority of DOD procurements, especially when we're not talking about big ticket defense items, fall under that threshold. But more importantly, the report contemplates that agencies can make procurement-specific decisions to exceed that threshold with you know, appropriate authorization, but there's not a whole lot by way of restriction in the report that says you can only do this under certain circumstances. So you know, $15 million is the initial marker, but these procedures could be used for protests far larger than that as well. These recommendations would at least be limited to DOD procurements, right? I mean, I know that we see a lot of confusion whenever there's a threshold for DOD versus civilian and even further confusion when the thresholds are different. But these specific recommendations would be only for DOD, right? Right. So, and again, this goes back to the genesis of the 809 panel. It was a panel that was put in place to consider DOD procurements. It arose out of the, the NDAA. And so for the time being, these recommendations speak only to DOD procurements, not civilian agencies. So now that we've addressed Recommendation 35, can you speak briefly to some of the other more protest-specific recommendations from the report? Yeah, so 66 through 69 all speak to aspects of 
GAO and Court of Federal Claim process. I think two are particularly significant. Recommendation 67 would require protesters to choose a forum, GAO or the Court of Federal Claims, but not both. So it would eliminate second bite protests. When you say second bite protests, you mean a protester filing initially a GAO, losing and then going to the court, right? And I just want to clarify, this wouldn't affect potential challenges to a corrective action after a protest or, you know, uh, challenges by the original intervener if the agency changes its mind. Those would still be viable protests, right? Yeah, so typically a second bite protest is a follow-on protest at the Court of Federal Claim to the same award decision. So it's, you know, protester goes to the GAO, is unsuccessful and brings a challenge to the exact same award decision at the Court of Federal Claims. If there's an intervening agency decision in the interim, either to take corrective action on its own or to follow a GAO recommendation, and you know perhaps the awardee then wants to go to court, that would not be a second bite protest. And that would still, as we read the recommendation, be allowable. So what would be some of the considerations that a protester would have to think through if Recommendation 67 was implemented and contractors were limited to choosing just the court or GAO? So, I I mean, I think in every instance, even under the current system, contractors have to make a decision as to whether they want to go to GAO or the court. Typically, contractors will go to GAO first for two overarching reasons. One, it's less expensive and less formal than the Court of Federal Claims. And more importantly, a timely filed GAO protest gets you the automatic stay of contract performance for the 100-day period in which the protest is resolved. But you know there are, are countervailing considerations. Though the Court of Federal Claims process is more formal, I mean, you, you are now in federal court you are also entitled to the entirety of the agency's evaluation record, so that could be helpful. And less of a consideration, but something that is still sometimes worth considering, is the defense of a protest at the Court of Federal Claims is handled by the Department of Justice. And there, there can be instances in which there's some value in having DOJ's sort of fresh set of eyes looking at an agency's procurement decision if you think the agency or its attorneys are maybe too close to the decision to to really consider what you think is your reasonable position about why the agency made a mistake. But in general, I, I don't think this recommendation is going to tip the scales any more in favor of a court of federal claims protest in the first instance. And so to round this out, earlier you mentioned that there were two protest-specific recommendations that you talk about. Uh, What was the second? So recommendation 69 speaks to essentially enhanced debriefings. It would be a more complete debriefing by DOD agencies. Enhanced debriefings have been implemented by a number of agencies. We see them in NASA procurements. We see them in Air Force procurements. And when there is a, a very full set of information provided in those debriefings, they can be quite useful to an unsuccessful bidder. And we have had instances in which we have received a pretty complete evaluation file and kind of a complete basis for the source selection decision. And based upon that information, we have been able to counsel 
unsuccessful bidders against a protest because based upon the information that we have, it seems less likely to be successful. Unfortunately, agencies still take a pretty defensive posture when providing debriefings. And so a lot of times companies are forced to protest simply because they don't have enough information to know one way or another whether or not there was any sort of infirmity in the award decision. So, you know, on the whole, I think Recommendation 69 and the idea that agencies should provide more information, not less, is certainly a good one, and we'd love to see it implemented. The question is whether even if enhanced debriefings as a general rule are imposed, whether agencies really comply with the spirit of them. I suppose it would be hard to see Recommendation 69 having a major impact also if, if Recommendation 35 and the reasonably available procedures go forward. You know, if, if a debriefing isn't required in the first instance, then getting more information uh, isn't going to be all that helpful. Yeah, you know, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, if Recommendation 35 is implemented, you know, a debriefing, even if it tells you a ton of information, the only thing you can challenge at that point is whether the decision to go the readily available route was rational and so there's not a whole lot not a whole lot of meat on that bone road. So what's your prediction? Are any of these recommendations gonna come to fruition? It's hard to say, Olivia. You know, I, I'm just not sure whether the current House of Representatives is inclined to cede oversight of the DOD procurement process to DOD itself and, you know, just more generally whether it has the time or the interest to take up what would be a pretty significant change to the federal procurement process. But, um, you know, contractors should certainly stay apprised on what's going on with the 809 panel's recommendations and potential changes to the procurement process. Contractors should check out Kroll and Mooring's blog, get on our mailing list to get up-to-date bullet points on what's happening. And to the extent they have concerns, contractors should, you know, talk to their federal customers let them know that they're aware of these proposed changes and, and express their concerns. And to the extent they or we have contacts on the Hill, we will, um, we will do the same. Shameless plug there, Anush. But for all of our listeners, definitely recommend Anush's blog post on the Section 809 panel in particular. There's a lot more detail there for the information we just discussed. And as always, you know, check out our blog. We will be covering the Section 809 panel uh, as it progresses and potential implementation of the various recommendations. But until next time, everyone, thanks for listening. The All Things Protest podcast is brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash allthingsprotest.